Hi, welcome to An Hour of Our Time, the podcast where we take a topic, study it, and come back to tell you what we've learned. Today we're talking about magic. We're going to define magic. We're going to go over the history of magic, talk about some of the most classic magic tricks, and finally talk about how magicians spawned the scientific skeptic movement. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. And I'm Mark. Everybody have a nice holiday. That's pretty nice. Yeah, we got a little snowed snowed in. Um, What, Friday, like the Christmas Eve Eve, we were supposed to go someplace, and then we didn't. Christmas Eve, we were supposed to go someplace, and didn't. Because uh, here in uh, here in Ohio and love this this area of the country got like it was warm and it rained and then it got really really cold below freezing so all that rain froze and uh, people in Columbus Ohio are not known for being um, very good drivers which is amazing I I ended up leaving town on Thursday so I got ahead of it but my brother. Had to drive that three-hour drive to to Youngstown from Columbus in that bad weather. Mm-hmm. So, but overall, we had a we had a fine holiday. Although I ended up getting COVID uh, the day after Christmas, I started having symptoms. So, if we we are a week behind in our schedule, that is why I was out last week. Um, finally, you know, feeling better, able to. Uh, to talk normally and all that stuff, although I, I am just very slowly getting my sense of taste and smell back, which s- just sucks. It's definitely a bummer. It's it's annoying, but uh, overall, overall, an okay holiday. I was one of eight people in my family with a positive test, and that is more than half that gathered. So that's, uh, that's a lot. That's Who a was lot. The the patient zero. We don't know. Don't know. Um. But we didn't we didn't do um, testing this year like we did last year. Um, I sh- wish I would have been more of a stickler about that. Although last mm-hmm. year two people got it, like the testing when you are not symptomatic, the home tests. I'm really not convinced that doing it is telling you enough to to make a fully informed decision. Um, but in this case, we may have we may have had the information we needed. Well, the uh, what the what those at home rapid tests are telling you really is the level of uh infectious virus in your nose so it's they they're essentially telling you whether you are infectious or not sure sure um so. which is you know depending on the situation you know either useful or not i just find it funny that you know the time the families tend to gather every year is cold and flu season i think we should just accept that christmas should be in the summer uh you know if jesus <laughs> existed he was born in may so let's just shift it and call it a day so southern hemisphere christmas yeah yeah i i think that um i think that christmas should be moved one month back to january 25th which i think would actually somewhat help with this because you're kind of getting out of cold and flu season by then because that's really like a late fall early early winter um but uh mostly it's because um you know by the time christmas rolls around you're like oh it's getting cold the weather's changing oh it's snowy oh it's so magical love christmas 
by January 25th, you're like, oh man, I hate this shit. <laughs> it's <laughs> cold and wet and yeah, I'm ready for spring. So, you know, just bump that baby back one month. You'll be like, okay, you know, this kind of sucks, but at least it's Christmas. Well, on the point of moving Christmas and other things that seem impossible, today, there you go. we're talking about magic. See, I used the word magical in that, Dave. I was trying to give you your in, but you, you went a... You went around the side. You zigged yeah. when I thought you were going to zag. Yeah, I, I full-on Magellan did. I circumnavigated <laughs> that. Um, yeah, magic. But uh, I suggested this topic, and when I suggested it, what I said was, let's talk about magic because I hate it. Um, <clears throat> now, let me clarify. In my research, and I was talking to Mark about this before we started, I realized that I, I hate modern stage magic like David Copperfield. I am very intrigued by the history and skill involved in close-up magic and sleight of hand. Um, so I don't hate all magic. I, I hate modern stage magic and I hate television shows where they do a dumb trick to a thousand people and they take the 10 dummies that shit their pants and they put their reaction on television. I hate it. Hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. I read about how a few how a few tricks are done and some of them are so simple that it made me mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, the I, Those are... Uh... Yeah, the the new crop of like close up magic or street magic that's like like Chris Angel more about that's the specific style of magic you're talking about, Dave. That's like it's more about the audience's reaction than it is about what the trick is. I I also am like that's like also a huge genre of videos just on social media in general. Like you know people like you know, coming up to people on the street and asking them dumb questions or stuff like that. I, yeah. I do not understand why that's entertaining, but also I may be a grandpa at this no, point when it comes to social you're not. media. You, you just have half a brain, so you don't find it entertaining. Oh, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. Yeah, you have, at least, you, you have at least half a brain. At least one half. You're not right, into yoga. Um, I will take it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, I really, I like Penn Jillette's take on magic, and I feel like it's, it's starkly different than people like... Chris Angel and David Blaine, whereas I was telling Mark... Brain freak! Exactly. I heard Pendulet describe magic as saying the magician comes up and says, I'm going to lie to you, and then they do. Which I think is really like a good way of looking at it. Whereas like David Blaine and Chris Angel, their whole thing is kind of like, I have superpower. Like they try to play this character they're taking that it actually... They're seriously. They're, 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 they, at least they portray it as taking it too seriously. And it's like not... It's not fun. I'm going to talk about... Um the direct uh, ancestor, so to speak, magically of, of Penn and Teller, um, probably towards the end. But what you're talking about, Dave, is like a, uh, is an actual, I don't know, disagreement or controversy within the illusionist or magician community. Right. Which is, what is the point of this? Are we actually attempting, then there's a camp of people who say that you should never at all claim that you're doing anything paranormal and you should explain the way that you're doing your tricks. Uh, some magicians in history have even patented their tricks, which I'll discuss a few examples. Learning you, about like how said, some of these tricks are done was more interesting than the actual trick. Yeah. And, and you know, Joe, to your point, that idea, that like divide within the community mm-hmm. sounds a lot like um, kind of like kayfabe in wrestling where there are some like wrestling leagues that like really play on the idea that it's fake and they kind of make it sort of jokey and then there uh-huh. are ones 
not so much now. I mean, the WWE sort of, but like play it up as like it's very real, right? I think that age has sort of died, but for a while there was kind of this like, you know, this back and forth there. And it kind of feels yeah. like breaking kayfabe, right? Like David Blaine does not break kayfabe. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, on the other side, like I said, then, then there are the people who are like, you know, kind of um, uh, it varies degrees of um, charlatan. They're the people who are simply like, here's my tricks and then I'm not explaining how I, I, I will yeah. never reveal how I do them. That That's obviously like, you know, perfectly respectable um, in, in this craft, all the way to people who are actively charlatans using their um their skills in order to deceive people and even like fleece them for money like you know the yeah. classic example would be like the uh the cup and ball trick well uh, yes <laughs> are you are you is... aware of the painting the conjurer by bosch yeah yes yeah, from 1502 and it depicts a, a magician doing a cup and ball trick but behind the spectator looking if you look closely there's a pickpocket robbing them and this is one of the starts of like people associating like street magicians with being charlatans and associated with pickpockets. And it happens to people that can do sleight of hand typically are mm-hmm. good at being a pickpocket as well. Doesn't mean that they well, sure. do those things. Um, but this painting is, is a big part of that. So, so let's let's talk history for a second. Yeah, let's go for it. So I there is the American Museum of Magic. Um, I meant to look at where it is. It is in, oh, it's in Michigan. Marshall, Michigan. I, I would like to go here. Um I want to read their mission statement because it also includes their definition of magic, which I think is great. Magic, sometimes referred to as illusion, is a performing art in which audiences are entertained by stage tricks or illusions of seemingly impossible feats using natural means. At the American Museum of Magic, we help to educate individuals young and old about the history of magic and the people who have performed it. So I like that, like, seemingly impossible feats using natural means that's a great that's a great way of describing it and i i in reading that i was like okay i'm interested in this museum mm-hmm. yeah so so they asked the question and I, i'm going to use a lot of their information i'm going to take here i'm going to supplement it a bit but they asked the question on their website how far back can we go in terms of the history of magic and unsurprisingly we're going pretty far back to ancient egypt before we They're, get too far Dave, one of our favorite places Yes. I would like to speak a moment about supernatural magic. Please. Just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To clarify that my definition that I just put out there, I'm talking about like stage and street performance magic. Magic that we're talking about is illusion, stage magic. Uh, escapist. Sleight escape of hand. Artists, stuff like that. Tri- I'm going to call that a trick. It's a trick. And they use or the, an they, illusion. They, they say stage tricks or illusions. Exactly what they mm-hmm. say. So yes, for sure. Um, but this should be distinguished from paranormal magic, which are effects claimed to be created through supernatural means. And that you mean like you mean like chaos magic, conjuring something, performing a spell to entice a, a result from a, some other force. So it's would the right, right and left hand, right and left hand path be a part of this? Yeah, that's mad. Like magic with a K. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the word M A G I C. The word magic <laughs> itself uh, can be traced back to the Proto-Indo-European language uh, word "mog," meaning to be able or to have power. And the word machine also has the same entomological root. 
Okay, mm. that makes sense. As a interesting note. Um, also, the influence of Zoroastrian priests called Magush yeah. sort of changed the connotation of priests to magician. Um, one of my sources pointed out that one religion's holy priest is another religion's dangerous magician. Um, so kind of depending quote. on your point of view, somebody could be either of these things. That's really interesting. Uh, there's been a couple episodes, I think, like the Protestant Reformation being one of them, where we, and uh, Joan of Arc, where we've discussed that the church was um, uh, against superstitions and magic, <laughs> which is really interesting because, of course, if you are a non-believer, then any given religion is also superstition. But You mean superstitions that are not part of their belief system? Yes. I was yeah. trying to be... Um, Diplomatic, but but uh, Mark, know, there's he, no no need. <laughs> as you were saying, Mark. Well, in, in Roman times, the word magia had a pejorative connotation and described any religious ritual outside of the norm. Mm, okay. Um, often, magic in a supernatural sense can uh, be used to describe uh, an exoticized element of a religious ritual for the purpose of a personal goal. Um, such as healing or cursing a rival. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the point of magic in a more intangible sense. That kind of brings us to chaos magic a little bit. Um, and magic in some ways overlaps with developing scientific thought as supposedly they both rely on expert knowledge, experimentation, and manipulation to achieve an effect. Uh, you sure the big difference, I mean, I think early on, you know, that, that may have been the case, but, um, you know, obviously the big difference is that science is empirical. I don't know if I completely agree with this, but they were talking about it in terms of like an alchemist or, uh, an occult person trying to figure out a way to achieve their goal, but from a supernatural perspective yeah well ultimately alchemy you know was the the antecedent of chemistry but of course chemistry left alchemy behind once you know they added that like i said that element of empiricism did ditto for astrology um begats astronomy but Again, with adding that, and and I should say empiricism, I should define that meaning, um, you know, you you take the available evidence and then you change your your ideas based on the evidence, Um, which, of course, this these practices don't do. Right. So so basically, Mark, what you're saying is that, like, you could argue or this whoever your sources could is arguing that, like, ritual magic. Uh, em- employs the scientific method while adding in the element of belief. Yeah. Well, it, it el- adds. It I mean, th- this isn't of the necessary for our conversation. But it clouds yeah. the the method with the element of belief. Yeah. The outcome you already know. That's what, that's, what I, know, that's what I. That's what I know. The yes. outcome you believe that you know the outcome, which, and you're seeking is, the explanation for. Where, uh, which is the reverse which is, which is of the inverse science. of yes yeah. yeah 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 no Mark I think that's an interesting discussion to have because so we're gonna we're gonna focus not on 
that type of magic. Well, but yeah. through, yeah. throughout yeah. mad mag, stage magic, as we're going to talk about this um, pull of scientific understanding versus perception, kind of comes up again and again. And I don't know, it, it's worth noting. But magic is a performing art, is what we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, and it has a long and rich history as well. Um, and the the first earliest magic trick is described in an Egyptian text from around 1700 BC. Actually, uh, I have Dave's, twenty. Dave's I have twenty five twenty five hundred BC. Oh, older than that. That's that's at least that's what uh, I found on this this museum, American okay. Museum of Magic. Well, it involves a, ma- a goose, doesn't it? Yes, it does. A magician named, and I've heard his name said as Dedi or Jedi. Not sure the pronunciation here, but hmm. supposedly performed a decapitation trick for a pharaoh in which he severed the head right. of a goose. The goose then got up, walked over to its severed head, and like reattached it and was fine. Hmm. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that worked out. The problem is here, there's really no other record of it, of it than this one papyrus. Um, the, so, like, there's a lot of debate about whether anything like this ever happened. But it does show that there sure. was pr- trick performances done for nobility in ancient Egypt. This sounds like a magic trick, but there isn't any kind of explanation about how it was done or what the purpose was for or that it even mm-hmm. actually happened. Or that it even happened. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> interesting, though. If you zip a little bit further ahead, though, let's go to the 21st century BCE. So now we're, we're a couple hundred years later. Um, there, is, uh, there are some tomb paintings. Um, and you know what? I'm not sure. Let me double check where this is. Uh, we, are, we are still in ancient Egypt. Um, this these uh, tomb paintings depict two men sitting around a table with inverted bowls, and some historians interpret this as the first example of the cup and ball routine. Um, it's possible that it could be a different game, except it's important to note that the paintings in this tomb around this also depict jugglers and people playing other games and doing other leisurely activities. However, we do have actual record around 500 uh, CE of the cup and ball game being played in ancient Rome. Um, it was, was, was a common routine on the streets of Rome for around 250 years, and there's record of it in other ancient cities from across the world. Now, we all know what the cup and ball routine is. The old cup and ball. The old shell game. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's the classic close-up magic game where you have usually three cups, three bowls, whatever, and three balls, and it's it's this mixture of where things are going to appear, uh, how they're going to disappear from one place and appear somewhere else. Um, there was a, an ancient Greek, sorry, ancient Roman historian, Seneca the Younger, mm-hmm. and he wrote this about the cup and ball routine, and I, I really like this quote. Obviously, this is translated from Latin, but such quibbles are just as harmlessly deceptive as the juggler's cup and dice, in which it is the very trickery that pleases me. But show me how the trick is done, and I have lost my interest therein. So mm. not only is it a, a, a common trick and routine from thousands of years ago across the world, it's also pretty widely understood that it's a trick. Mm-hmm. That, it's a sleight that, of hand trick. It's a sleight of hand. So like people back then didn't believe that it was some sort of like evil you know thing you were conjuring. It was just a trick. It was viewed that way in ancient Rome. So we're going to get into when magic is viewed differently. But if you go back 2,000 years and perhaps further back than that, it was understood as a trick as we understand it now. 
I thought that was interesting to point out. Yeah, the uh, yeah, the Romans had a few things right. Well, for the next thousand or more years, there's not a lot known about magic, and most of that is because it wasn't very popular. It got associated with the occult, and therefore people were afraid to do it. That is until 1584, and when a man named Reginald Scott published a book called The Discovery of Witchcraft um, that was basically showing how these tricks were done. It was designed to show how the tricks are done to prove that people were not uh, witches and could stop being you know, killed as such. Um, it was considered the first book published, uh, the, the first published material on performance magic. Um, again, this is 1584. Unfortunately, in 1603, at the ascension of James I, the book was ordered to be burned. And so I guess first editions of this are incredibly rare, but um, copies do exist. As far as the Middle Ages, I read a little bit about this, and there's obviously the magic witchcraft connection, and you know that could be dangerous. But um, from kind of what I read, they were trying to they were trying to explain that as long as you know a street performer was upfront about it being a trick for the purpose of entertainment, and that they didn't do anything seemingly dangerous, it wasn't a big deal. And yeah, like magicians, Satan. Magicians performed at fairs and markets, but they were like street performers. It wasn't anybody that ever got famous for doing anything incredibly spectacular. That is until Isaac Fox. Um, in the 1700s, I believe he was pretty prominent around in the 1720s. He's an English magician who kind of was the first to go out of his way to, one, promote his act, and two... Make it so that it wasn't like just people random. He wasn't a busker doing street tricks. He would put up tents, he'd rent out venues, and people would come to see him. Didn't have a full-on stage, but this is sort of the beginning of stage magic, although he did sleight of hand. And 1720s, the printing press was in full swing. And guess what What came with the printing press? Playing cards. Hmm. They weren't commonly used because prior okay. to that, they were usually made of stone and they were hand-painted, things like that. Now that they're paper, they're readily available, they're a commonplace, and he is one of the first to really popularize the use of playing cards uh, for close-up magic. Um, he was one, he did a trick that is really popular still, where he would, um, he'd have a deck of cards, he'd ask somebody to pick a card, um, and then he would throw the whole deck at the ceiling, and one card would stick to it, and it was that card. Um, that was like his to one, to the ceiling. Oh, okay. And it was the card the person picked. That was one of his signature tricks. The other one was he had a little like satchel, you know, and it was it had eggs in it. And it would probably if you looked at the thing, I saw like, you know, somebody holding a replica of it and it would probably hold like a dozen eggs. But he was able to pull out like over a hundred eggs. This is a part of his sleight of hand trick. So like that was that was the old bag of holding. He supposedly, and this is his own claim, but that he performed for King George II. And when he died in 1732, he had amassed a fortune equivalent to around a million dollars today. So it wow. did pretty well as a magician, given the time. Get that bag. Do you read about William Vincent? Uh, I didn't, know. He is another 17th century magician, um, and he is known by his stage name, Hocus Pocus. Oh, I did hear about him, yeah. Um, and he oh. performed for the king and at some point was granted a special license to perform magic in England. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, 1619, he got his license. Well, see, uh, what's oh, so, the fine for performing magic without a license, I wonder? Death. Death. 
Um, I you reminded me. Uh, I forgot to mention about Fox. The other thing that makes him sort of the precursor to modern stage magic is that as his shows became more popular, he sort of realized that he he could make money while doing less work. So he sort of invented the variety <laughs> show. He would have other acts come up as his like opening act. He loved contortionists. There was okay. another name for them at the time. It was like positionists or something like that. Hmm. Um, but he, yeah, that, so he sort of developed people the people won't get all bendy. Yeah, the full ass into their face hole. I meant to say <laughs> that the other way around. <laughs> um, anyways. What about uh, Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin? Houdin. That's the father of modern magic. Father of modern magic. Originally a clockmaker, he opened a magic theater in Paris in 1845. Um, he's probably a good example of the first like full-on stage musician magician, except you might also put in that group John Henry Anderson, who was um, doing the same sort of stuff in London in the 1840s as well. He um, opened the New Strand Theater. But these are um, good examples of people that are doing these like full-on stage magic shows. And if his name sounds somewhat familiar, Houdin, well, Harry Houdini takes his stage name from him. Apparently, he ended up hating him for some reason, but um, Houdini hmm. was a big admirer of Houdin's uh, for a while. Um, Houdini, though, he sort of is a, a different breed. So you go from oh, yeah. like close-up magic to stage magic to Houdini, who is an escape artist. Um, and so, th- to me, those are three really good examples of the types of magic that are common. Close-up, stage, escape. Yeah, there's there, there's other like uh, there's actually that's one of those other things where, where different magicians disagree on the different types of magic. But yeah, you've got um, stage magic, close up magic, and sometimes people will add parlor mm. magic as a third category where it's you're in like a smaller venue right. where you're close, but you're still not, um, you know, where you could touch the performer. But but yeah, and then there's also a lot of other things like escape magic like you said well and this is not to say that you are one and not the other you know houdini did a lot of full-on stage magic but eventually did more escape work would do it in public places did some different things there are examples of magicians who started off doing sleight of hand and eventually graduated to more stage Mm -hmm. things fox is sort of an example of that Mm -hmm. um so you know it's not it's it's like music now right like you're you're influenced by everything that came before you and if you're a magician now you're talking about thousands of years of this um, and you can't help but, you know, be influenced by the evolution of the craft. Yeah. But that was sort of my quick and dirty of, of magic. Well, here's a here's an interesting note to consider. So uh, during the Enlightenment era, uh, this goes back to our scientific thought comment, performing magicians adapted and incorporated scientific amusements into their tricks, things like electricity or magnetism, things that seemed like magic at the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's uh, you know, any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? Well, right. yeah. We're at a time now where I don't think people are gonna be amazed really by any kind of legitimate magic trick because you can achieve pretty much whatever you want visually with a computer. You you mark you. You, you bring up a good point because I forgot to mention Pepper's Ghost, as you and I were discussing before we rec- started recording. is a oh, great yeah, example of what you're saying, I think, Mark. Yeah. Well, let me, let me finish my thought here. <clears throat> so there's this guy named Joseph Panetti. He was an Italian-born magician known as the Professor of Natural Magic. 
mm. and he did complex sort of flamboyant tricks. He and didn't say abracadabra. He'd be like, manja. And then like red sauce would fly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he performed for aristocracy all over Europe and was one of the, uh, another early magician to take advantage of advertising for himself. Um, and speaking of Houdin, this um, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin fella that you mentioned, mm-hmm. he had a trick called the uh, growing orange tree trick. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Isn't that um, shown in, what's the Edward Norton movie? The Illusionist. Don't they do yeah. that in The Illusionist? Uh-huh. So basically, it's a mechanical contraption that achieves the effect of a growing tree out of a pot. Okay. There's nothing magic about it. It's not... It's not even complex. It's just something people hadn't seen before. How is it done? It, I think it's just like a, a stick that looks like a tree in a pot that has like a, a gear or whatever on it that just raises it up. So it mm. looks like it's growing. Nice. Oh, that you know, that's actually, uh, uh, if we could take a, a step back, um, talking about um, history magic, some of the mechanical contraptions during especially uh, late antiquity, I think would kind of fall into the category of magic trick. Um, we This is, could be an entire topic, I think, for another episode, but um, there are all sorts of various contraptions which would, you know, do, do things like uh, the priest would be, one of the simple ones would be a priest would be talking into a horn, which would then be amplified by a statue of a god. So you would, uh, and and these were intended to to trick and amaze people and uh, inspire awe. Uh, and they got increasingly complex, as, especially as you got into, like I said, late antiquity, like the Hellenistic period, um, where uh, Greece, you know, sort of briefly conquered most of uh, the Near East. Um, but um, I would say that those were like the direct kind of antecedent to some of the things that came later that like uh, mechanical magic tricks that uh, that you're uh, discussing mark well i wanted to say too that around probably the turn of the century too many people caught on or were familiar enough with machinery to not really care or be amazed about this anymore and that's when close-up sleight of hand and card magic became more popular Mm -hmm. as far as performance magic yeah once uh you know post-industrial revolution yeah like some of the like you know clock clockwork type uh mechanical things were not you know as impressive to people yeah sure so the the golden age of magic begins the late 19th early 20th century um the economy was good and middle class people had more money to go to theaters and see magic be performed and the sophistication of magic tricks increased, and some people claim that magic was sort of on the same par as fine art at mm. the time. Like a lot of people were into it. Mm-hmm. This was also the vaudeville era, where a lot of people would seek out entertainment, mm. yeah, of some sort. And magic tricks like this could be performed in a huge, fancy theater, or in the street, or in a tent, or wherever. And mm. it was just like a cool, accessible thing. For a lot of people. Hey there, Tootsie. Let's take it down to the theater. I see this new magician. It's going to make this broad's gams disappear. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the illusions being performed became more and more complex and magicians, you know, always wanted to outdo one another leading to more and more amazing illusions. Um, Georges Millier is a fellow we've talked about a few times before. He's a, a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He was uh, inspired by magic tricks and used early special effects in film to create magic trick-like effects in his films. Mm. Things like something disappearing or reappearing or somebody's head falling off or whatever. Those are the kind of things that you would see in a magic trick, and he adapted it to film in a cool way. So oh, mm-hmm. I know that on some streaming things, there are collections of Millier's films. Check them out. Yeah, a lot of these uh, tricks became the foundation for movie special effects uh, and and even a lot of um, the pioneers of special effects um, came from the you know, magic or, 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 or stage magic, um, world. I mean, they're kind of the, the definition of like in camera special effects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, pre, obviously pre CG, that's the only way that you were going to get special effects. Um, oh, yeah. so yeah. Should we discuss, uh, how some of these tricks were done? Yeah, please. I, yeah. I is anybody talking about how you saw a person in half? Because uh, uh, I, I'm kind of curious about that one. I am. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk about the murder? Well, I don't I, care. I got you, some, you can cover I got it. Some... I, I did like ten of them. Okay, I've got. Um, I I picked a smattering of ones. I've got the. Uh, well, we'll we'll just talk about it. Um, okay, so yeah, when you think of. Um, Magic tricks, you know, classic magic tricks. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, sawing a woman in half, right? These, these are the these are the things that you think of. Um, it's really interesting. Um, for a lot of magic tricks, it is difficult. Although obviously, you know, we were able to find how they are done, the the mechanism for them being done, because for many of them, they're proprietary. But for some of these, it's really interesting because they're actually patented. Um, and this was because. Well, you want to be the only one that can do this trick, right? Um, so anyway, um, the uh, uh, sawing woman in half is kind of an example of this. So the original trick was invented by P.T. Selbit in 1921, but it was popularized, uh, who is a, um, a UK-based. It was popularized by Horace Golden, who was in the U.S. He actually patented two methods that are still used today, including the second method that I'm going to describe is done uh, by Penn and Teller. They've performed it um, on national television. They perform it in their stage show. But of course, because it's Penn and Teller, they always explain how it's done immediately afterwards. Um, so this is like one of these things where you, <laughs> when you look at the like the diagrams or or see how it's done, it's, it's kind of like, um, oh, duh. But um, there's two ways to do it, or well, there's two ways they were uh, developed by Golding. There are many, many, many other ways to do it, um, but not all of them are are known to the public. Okay. So the first way of uh, uh, their first method that Golden patented was a box, and uh, oh, it was usually a woman who would go into the box. Um, there's actually a lot of like 
confluence of like social um, factors that went into this. So um, prior to this, it would have sort of been kind of um, scandals to have a woman on stage. So you would have used a man, but when it became acceptable to have a female assistant, then often uh, you could find a, a small woman to use as the assistant to make this trick easier for it to work. Right. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, these are easier if you look up the images of this, but so if you look up Horace golden, but anyway, so the box is seen from the side uh, and it appears to be about the same, you know, just, just large enough for the woman to fit inside, but it's actually far deeper than it looks from the audience. So essentially the woman is just curled up inside because she has far more room than it appears from the audience. Does, curled up, do you, you mean like you, like fetal position on your back? Yeah, she just curls up into with her legs at her side. Oh, okay. Because I like to sleep you, that way. It opens my back up nicely. Yeah, there you go. Um, and then sometimes this would be done with um, fake feet, uh, always wearing shoes, mm. because it was even said uh, in his patent that there was no such means to um, reproduce uh, feet that would look realistic with the technology at the time. I'm, I, you probably could do that today. But anyway, yeah. Um, and then they would even sometimes have electronic means to make the feet sort of move. Okay. Um, the second method, and this is the one that Penn and Teller uh, do, is there's actually a chamber concealed in the table which the box rests upon. So what the assistant will do is simply tuck their legs under down into the uh, secondary chamber that's inside the table. And then, again, maybe there's fake feet coming out the other end. When the box is sawed through, they're actually not sawing through anything. Um, and the, the the assistant is sort of like arched back with their uh, bottom of their torso and their legs sticking down into a chamber that's lower than the box trying to explain in an audio medium uh, an inherently visual thing but you need, um, you need a diagram. hopefully you can uh, yeah, I saw this done too with uh, with a second assistant where yeah. the the feet half was another real person yeah yeah when uh, yeah the problem with the um, you know there's a lot of things with perspective here because you know that secondary table has got to be concealed because if you just like have the box on top of like another box it's pretty obvious that they're actually down their legs are down inside that so um it's concealed to look like a table with legs possibly using mirrors other things like that um this, the saw this up, itself is kind of a distraction yeah right to the audience as well sometimes these tricks are done not with saws but um simply by sliding glass plates there's other method there's other versions of this trick that use um, you know, a long blade that goes through, um, all kinds of, you know, there was a, uh, a magician who, uh, uh, Ricciardi Jr., who's a Peruvian magician who used a buzzsaw with, uh, fake blood and viscera that would come out. So it was, nice. yeah, you know, all, all kinds of different, um, all kinds of different versions of this. There's another version, um, that was made famous by David Copperfield, who, as kids of the 90s, you've probably seen David Copperfield called um, Clearly Impossible that uses a clear box. 
Um, and um, I could not find information about how that is done because that's a Copperfield is yeah he's not uh, cool about that sort of stuff. No, he he's in the camp of it's not fun if you don't if you know how it's done. Never gonna tell you. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna ruin his secrets here in a little while. Oh yeah, Good. I researched one of his things and it's stupid. Ruin his ass. Um, you want me to do another quick one here in the market? Maybe you can do a couple. Sure. I do really want to talk with Pepper's Ghost. I'm a big, big fan of that. Um, but uh, the Dove Pan. This is like a really basic magic trick that you could, um, you can go buy one on Amazon right now. <laughs> it's not going to come with a real Dove, probably. Damn it. Um, but usually, yeah, you, that's uh, sold separately. So what it was was um, there would be an empty container, a bowl of some kind. Usually these were these were metal, and um, you'd fill it with uh, gasoline or alcohol or some other kind of flammable liquid. Sometimes you'd um, put something else in there, and then you'd set it on fire. And then to extinguish it, you take the lid and slam it down on top of it. When you lift the lid. It was called the um, the dove pan because then a dove would then fly out. Well, sure. what's happening? Inside the lid, there is concealed another pan that is almost the same size as the bottom pan. So when you slam the lid down with your flourish, you're dislodging it. It is landing in the first pan course now you can't tell that it's actually two pans nested with one another and the dove or whatever it happens to be was concealed within the lid when you slam it down then it releases and now the dove flies away so it's like a it's a super simple trick um again uh a lot of this is involved a lot of the trick is involved with your flourish yeah say so a lot of doing, a lot of tricks are just slamming something down hard on a table yeah well it's all about the flourish right if you do it like kind of First, that's dislodging the secondary pan, but it's also part of the spectacle, which is what people came to see. So that's the dove pan. That's another like really, really simple one. I'd like to think that Emerald was like a fa- failed um, sleight of hand <laughs> magician. <laughs> Bam! Bam! <laughs> yeah. He he would just uh, like throw throw spices in your face, concealed in his sleeve. Yeah, every one of his tricks was just like garlic in your eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I prefer the garlic in my mouth, but you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Here's right, another. Well, what else we got here? Uh, another interesting, kind of similar trick called the Vanishing Lady. Mm, yep. Um, 1886. There was a magician named Boutier de Colta, who was one of the first to do this trick. And it's a trick where uh, the assistant lays down on a bench or a table, is covered with a sheet. And the sheet with the woman under it levitates up and then disappears when the sheet is removed. Right. Okay. But this is another um, piece of elaborate prop uh, stage work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So in reality, the bench has a secret compartment in it where the assistant hides. Um, She lays down... And then is has a sheet pulled up. So you can't really see what is going on. When the sheet's up, she slips inside of a compartment in the bench and then pulls over a wire form that looks like the outline of a woman. 
and that is attached to um, wires that you know just go up into the ceiling like normal. So the whole right. thing will rise up. You can't see the woman. Um, and then the. Oh, I mean, I guess that's all the trick. When they pull the, yeah. the sheet off, I, I'm amazed myself. When they pull the sheet off, the <laughs> wire form can't really be seen against the the black backdrop of a stage. And it just kind of goes up into the rafters and disappears. So oh, that to the audience, it looks like the woman completely disappeared, but she's just, you know, fucking hiding in a box in a bench. <laughs> that is very similar. I think that's really similar to the... Uh, version of the uh asra levitation oh is that right, the thing there's... with the levitation with the uh the hoop no that's across. one where you know they've they've uh you know the assistant lies down and they cover them with a cloth oh but, yes yeah but the cloth and the flourish of putting on the cloth actually conceals a wire frame of the assistant that then is put down the the assistant um has you know escaped via you know some trap mechanism or somehow is now off stage and then that that wire frame is lifted via wires and appears to the woman appears to levitate and then you know reappears later you know unharmed it's kind of uh related to what you were talking about mark what i think is interesting is there's a lot of wires a lot of these um like levitation um tricks wires and explained. trap doors or just explained with wires. Yeah. But what off but what is not often used is smoke and mirrors. So, you know, the phrase well, related some, to sometimes magic, mirrors. Sometimes, <laughs> but it's all smoke and mirrors. But mirrors are relatively uncommon for on stage magic because um mirrors are heavy, difficult to move, and often break. So it's not as much. There's not as many mirrors in magic tricks as I think maybe people think. And also, if you if you don't place a mirror correctly, <clears throat> like to get a whole audience to be able to see something that way, or like their yeah. their, their perception to be altered is difficult. Right. The larger the theater is, yeah, you'll 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 ruin it. Uh, depending on if uh, you know you don't have careful seating. A lot of this depends on the perspective and angle. Like if it's mm-hmm. right uh, seen from a different angle, it doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, you mean like if you disappear the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> Hell yeah. Should we talk about that bullshit? Let's do let's do that. Let's okay. do it. So this was something I, I remember David Copperfield oh, man, um, I remember, doing man, on TV. This, he these made are like the, fucking primetime specials. Man. I just watched it the other uh, yesterday and I, I I didn't see it when it happened. You can probably say when when it was. It was like late nineties, right, Mark? Mid nineties? Yeah. He he uh, did one where he made the Statue of Liberty, uh, quote unquote, disappear. There was one that I remember where he made a space shuttle disappear. Yep. yep. And when we, I was doing my research, I thought like, man, I wonder how they did that. I remember that. Well, the answer is um, disappointing. <laughs> so <laughs> Real- this reality trick, is often disappointing. Yeah. This is a, a clever stage engineering perspective and coordination trick. So the this is for TV as well. If it right, right. if you saw it in person, it wouldn't be anything. Cuz you um, if you were so standing on the other side, it wouldn't fucking matter. You would crane your neck and see what actually happened. 
Right. Well, didn't they um, often have live audiences for some of these things to say like this is recorded like you know yeah but they were probably this in has on not the been trick. altered or or sure. they're penned in a specific area yeah they're penned like in they a can specific con- area. they can control their perspective because the idea was the television audience would just say okay well it, you know especially as you get in further into the the nineties uh, people would have say well they just they recorded this previously and you know used video editing to to do it but they're always like this is live and there's a live audience yeah yeah so for this trick usually there are two pillars on either side that are shown with the statue of liberty in the middle in the distance between them um, it's usually done at night and the statue is illuminated by a set of lights a curtain is raised to block the view of the statue of liberty uh, and while the curtain is up, the whole stage rotates slightly, um, concealing the statue from view behind one of the pillars, and a duplicate set of lights illuminate the new center of focus for the viewer and makes it seem like it's disappeared. Nothing disappeared. Oh, that is so fucking dumb. Except maybe for your brain. Yeah. The stage rotates just a little bit, uh-huh. and it makes it look when you're viewing it or seeing it on TV makes it look like it disappeared. Okay. It did. I'm going to learning about this. I feel like upset <laughs> that I have been thinking about this magic trick for 20 years. And it's something so fucking stupid. Right. Counterpoint counterpoint you ready for my hot take here. Do it. I think that's a feat of engineering um and stagecraft and i and i still think that's hella impressive i i, I agree with you joe except that here's the thing here this is why i hate stage magic and like close-up magic <laughs> close-up magic is like so much skill and dexterity and understanding misdirection and stage magic is standing within a contraption that the magician probably didn't build he probably asked an engineer like how can i do this right. i think it's an it's an art piece at that point you know it's 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 I think it's a piece of performance art. I think it's interesting. I, I'm in the camp of I do want to know how it's done. As a piece but, of performance um, art, I agree yeah. with you. That could be cool if you're looking at it that way. But as a trick meant to amaze people, it's kind of cheap knowing how it's done. You're, you're right, Dave, though, like that it is. Uh, and different people, obviously, you know, preference is preference. Um, I, 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 I think Close to Magic is neat, too. But it's like it's different. It's a different skill set that the different kinds of uh, magicians or illusionists would need. One is like you said, like sleight of hand, you know, dexterity, things like that. Um, Understanding like people and, and noticing like where their eyes are, misdirection, things like that. And then the stage, you know, magicians are even when, especially when you get to this larger scale with like television and stuff like that, it's more about, it's a feat of performance or of engineering of perspective of building these contraptions. I think they're, there's room in my heart for both. But if you watch it, this is probably it, where it, I should. This is probably where I should out myself. I used. To, I was. I loved magic as a kid. I taught myself several magic tricks, especially some you know sleight of hand because that's what you can do cheaply when you're a kid. Uh, and I uh, was really interested in. Uh, I watched every one of those TV specials for sure. But if you watch Copperfield do this, it's it's annoying because all it is is him filmed from a low angle like he's Ronnie James Dio, <laughs> d- like putting his hand up in a grand way as the curtain is being raised and then yelling, no, and then it falls and he didn't do fucking shit. 
Fuck that guy. He's he prejudged. sold all he did was say he's a used car salesman. He's project managing at that point. Well, anyway, we could we could go on back and forth on this, but there's a another kind of similar trick. Um uh, the old walking on water trick. The old where, Jesus. You know, the somebody walks Christ. across the surface of a pool and it's like real cool looking. Mm-hmm. But it's just a, a plexiglass <laughs> platform just under the surface of the water, which mm. is invisible from certain perspectives. It's just a simple illusion. Yeah. Um, the yeah. audience wouldn't know how it's done without knowing what to look for, but the platform is visible to the magician, so he knows where to go. But if you're behind him or from a certain angle, you're going to see that there's a fucking platform in the water. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's not really that much of, of a trick. Yeah, but that's an example of using optics um, and the uh, you know the refractive index of the water being similar to the plexiglass, depending on where you're looking at it from, things like that. Yeah, and you have to be clever enough to figure out how to do that. There's a there's a lot of optical illusions in magic, and I think um, you know my favorite one and the one I I knew I wanted to talk about was but but Mark, it sounds like you also wanted to talk about this as well, so we can kind of tag team it. Okay. Pepper the Pepper's Ghost illusion. This one was kind of clever and very elaborate. So maybe you can explain it better than I can. Um, I was going to talk about some places that it's used. But, I can explain um, it. Okay. Yeah. If, if it's helpful. Yeah. So basically, Pepper's Ghost, if you've ever been to the Haunted Mansion. That's uh, what I was talking about. Yeah. The Haunted Mansion at both uh, uh, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World and Disneyland, as well as the Pinocchio's Daring Journey ride at Disneyland, which was actually, the I believe, the earlier use of it. Yeah. Uh, at a very small scale. Well, so so Pepper's Ghost was an illusion created by an English scientist named John Henry Pepper. Um, he Is he the same this... guy that developed Dr. Pepper? I don't, I don't think so. Dr. Charles Pepper? This is one of the 23 flavors. <laughs> um, in the early 1860s, he developed this, and I believe it was first used on Christmas Eve 1862 during a performance of a Charles Dickens play... I can't remember the name of it. It was not uh, the one you're thinking of with ghosts, a different one with ghosts. Um, And yeah, it's it's Dickens. There's going to be ghosts. Uh, (laughs) And uh, basically what it is, is to create the illusion of a ghost on stage off of like to the side of the stage or sometimes beneath the stage. I think in this case, it was actually beneath it. You had an actor like in a sheet and they were illuminated by a light underneath the stage in front of the stage there is a mirror at like a 45 degree angle that the audience can't see couldn't do this so well now because somebody flashed a phone or something at it you'd notice it but it's at a 45 degree angle and when if you dim the stage lights and brighten the light underneath the stage illuminating the uh the actor their reflection is then picked up by the mirror thus displaying them in a ghostly form next to the actors that are actually on stage well it it could be or it could be a pane of glass sorry did i say mirror i meant i you meant a pain. sorry yeah. i meant i meant a pane of glass yeah yeah it works because it's, it's clear yeah yeah um, and, and this gives that illusion of of a ghost on the stage. Now, the thing about Pepper is that he wanted the audience to understand how it was done. He was not a magician. Mm-hmm. He was very yeah. clear showing the audience how it was done after after a performance. So I want to point that out as well. But this has been used in you know the many years since then. Joe, if you want to talk about some of the examples. 
Yeah, well, so, you know, just like, uh, you know, on the one form of the Pepper's Ghost, uh, the the room that contains the thing that's going to appear would be off to the side. Sometimes it, it would be in a chamber actually underneath the stage. Yeah. Uh, or even above it. Um, and when you get into the theme park world, um, then it's, you know, you know, it can be any of those places because you're, you're obviously constructing entire rooms. So this has been used in a lot of theme parks. Um, and I guess in the concept, we, we should do an episode about theme parks, but uh, there's concept of a dark ride. Was dark rides were popularized in carnivals and things like that, but really perfected by Disneyland and the Disney parks um, subsequently. And these are the rides like the Haunted Mansion, if you're familiar, where you are sitting in some vehicle that's moving through show scenes, often with uh, audio animatronic figures. Um, and I misspoke earlier, uh, the Haunted Mansion, the Disneyland version, uh, did did predate uh, Pinocchio's Daring Journey, because um, the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland in California opened in 1969, mm. and uh, uh, Pinocchio's um, Daring Journey opened in uh, 1976, or I'm sorry, 1983. But uh, anyway, um, the Haunted Mansion has a super famous scene where the audience goes into a room and then ghosts appear in this room, these ghostly semi-transparent figures, and then they dance around the room. They are actually physical animatronic figures that are um, using this Pepper's ghost illusion. So, um, But it's one of these things where you can look right at it, you can tell exactly how it's being done. I know that there is a room where there's, these animatronics are actually just moving around and this is being projected onto a screen. Uh, by screen, I mean like a thin film. Um, but it doesn't matter. You, 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 it still looks real um, because it's a physical optical effect. Um, so the Haunted Mansion has become such a popular uh, attraction that it actually, like, there's iterations um, now at... Uh, all of the Disney theme parks. So the original version opened in 1969 at Disneyland. Uh, Very shortly after that, the Disney World version, which is my favorite, opened in 1971. Tokyo Disneyland has a version. Disneyland Park in Paris has a version uh, called Phantom Manor. Uh, Hong Kong Disneyland has a version called Mystic Manor. Um, So uh, the only one that doesn't have one is Shanghai Disney, but, um, you know, this is where the world of magic, like I said, then leads into movie special effects and theme park special effects. For some more modern examples, if you remember when Tupac, the Tupac hologram Coachella in 2012 was not a hologram. It used this same idea. But you know what the best example is? I hate that they call this a hologram. The best example of Pepper's Ghost right now, a teleprompter. Yes. A teleprompter is exactly the same idea. Yep. That's this Pepper's is also Ghost. the same as the girl to gorilla sideshow. Yeah. Illusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it just hinges on the the idea of making this pane of glass as invisible as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes yep. they would hide it in the, pa- the like the bottom edge in the pattern of the floor mm-hmm. or something like that uh, and place it in a way that nothing else was going to reflect on it or else it would kind of blow the trick. Or, yeah, illusion. Uh, illusion. Yeah. Trick is what a whore does for money, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
do do we want to talk about a couple more tricks or yeah because i want to spend just a little bit of time talking about my favorite magician okay i got a i got a couple more um one is the old um catching a bullet in one's teeth oh mm. yeah yeah don't um, try that at home so this one the bullet is demonstrated to be loaded into a rifle um, but the bullet is removed by sleight of hand or sometimes with a magnet on the end of the ramrod. Uh, you hope that it's removed. You hope that it's removed. Many, many a magician have died trying to perform this miraculous feat. <laughs> yep. Um, and the magician surreptip- surreptitiously puts the bullet in his mouth and then acts like he got shot to pull off the illusion. Um, mm-hmm. The beautiful assistant is often used as a distraction to the audience and the whole like acting like you're shot and stuff like that, just act like playing the part makes the audience think, oh, he actually got shot. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, not much there. Um, the other Another one. Classic. But some people have died doing that trick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one is, I don't know. I've never like, I kind of remember this, but I don't know if this is a big time trick or not throwing a card through a pane of glass i've i've seen this Mm. one you know this one yeah um so it's like a is this your card premise of a trick but it uses two decks of cards and two assistants and a window frame prop set up on stage so the magician talks to a person from the audience or whoever and doesn't see the card chosen but one of the assistants with the duplicate deck does and selects the card in question, and then when the magician is going through his spiel and says his magic words or whatever, he'll throw the um, cards at the window, and at the same time, the other assistant will um, stick the card to the glasses to the right moment, making it look like it's stuck there by magic. And then they do the thing where they walk over to the window and look at it, and, oh, by God, the... The card is on the other side of the glass. How that happened? My How'd God, that, that was a plate glass window. Yeah, he threw that card right through it. Oh, that card's dead. <laughs> Slobber. <murder. laughs> here's a here's another simple one. Levitation. Yeah, this is probably a, a super old trick, but it uses a hidden framework covered by props or cloth. Usually they do it, and there's always a like a guy in a robe, and he's sitting over a rug, but there's really like a metal plate and a thing that goes up his sleeve to support yeah. him. Or some of the the simple ones um, are like just you kind of like are pushing one foot on your tiptoe, but you lift the other foot. You just sort of look like you're that's really, the David Blaine you're, one. Yeah. You're yeah. levitating, yeah. Or the that's um, the the Michael Jackson trick where he's got a like a stud that clips into his shoe so he can yeah. tip over. Yep. Right. Uh, the one I described is called the Balducci levitation. Uh, I think that's one you're sort of like only fooled by it once. Uh, and then there's a kind of a similar one called the King levitation where you actually have to take your shoe off. Uh, and then you're still sort of lifting one leg, but the shoes are clipped to the pants. So it's lifted up. There's a, there's a few different ways to do that, but that actually takes a lot of like, it's not sleight of hand, it's like sleight of foot and ankle, but you get the, you get my meaning. 
Have you seen the old spike through the stomach trick? Mm, I've been to Arby's. Hey, I've, seen, I've seen this one a few different ways and it's like somebody or usually the assistant gets lowered and they act like they got impaled through the guts by a mm-hmm. spike but it's like a retractable rubber spike like one of those toy knives mm. and <laughs> yeah. it, at some point the the magician will use a the a duplicate end of the spike mm. that has a magnet on it and just stick it to their costume somewhere mm. Classics. But, you know, in the hands of a skilled performer, I mean, I think like, you know, you, you could you could know how it's going to happen and watch them and still not see where they're doing the trick part of it. Right. Um, yeah. That's the that's the separation between like, you know, a skilled magician and, you know, whatever if I tried to do it or something. Well, um. Uh, an interesting thing about magicians is that many magicians are sort of predisposed, I think, to skepticism because, uh, as you said at the top of the episode, Mark, Penn Jillette, famous magician and skeptic, has said, you know, it's you're, you're telling the audience, I'm going to lie to you, and then you do it. So they are accustomed to trying to figure out what the trick is for things. Um, and it, there's actually a confluence of these two things. It, it was, uh, in fact, a magician who is one of the founders of the sort of modern skeptic movement. When I say skeptic, I mean um, uh, the the formal investigation of the pseudoscientific and paranormal. Um, I am talking about the amazing Randy, which was his magician stage name, although he never called himself a magician. Um, uh, he also never called himself a a debunker. He hated that phrase that I don't debunk things. He called himself an investigator. But anyway, he was born in 1928 as Randall James Hamilton Zwingy. Um, he uh, is famous for being a, you know, a magician. Um, and also in his later career um, for founding the committee for skeptical inquiry. And he was the founder of the James Randy educational foundation or JREF, who famously, um, famously offered uh, a $1 million paranormal challenge where they would give you a million dollars if you could prove right. uh, yep. any claim in the paranormal, spoon bending, card reading, reading auras, things like that. It will not surprise you that this prize has never been given away. Uh, technically, the, um, the prize is uh, after he retired. Uh, he died in uh, October 2020. Uh, but... Um, you know, sadly, but all he was quite old. But I thought it was really interesting. In his early life, he um, he happened into a church where the pastor was claiming to read minds. He figured out how he was doing it, and then he did the trick in front of the the churchgoers. Um, the pastor's wife called the police, and he spent four hours in jail. For what so that, charge? For like, I don't know, disrupting the the congregation or whatever. So that inspired his his life as a a skeptic. And he said that he was inspired by throughout his life to do this because he felt bad for people who are being fooled by these charlatans, often like fleeced for money. Um, in a in his twenties, he posed as an astrologer. Okay. Um, he he briefly actually wrote a column in a Canadian tabloid where he went under the name Zoran. But he he just uh, shuffled up 
stuff from other astrology columns and pasted them <laughs> together at random into a column, uh, which then, of course, he revealed. Um, he uh, uh, So later on in life, um, he's most famous for exposing on television Yuri Geller, who claimed to be a psychic, uh, and the faith healer Peter Popov. He is a friend of Johnny Carson, who was uh, previously a magician and also a famous skeptic. So Carson, you know, and him kind of conspired to expose these frauds. Um, uh, we we talked about Alice. Houdini a little bit, but Houdini was a big skeptic guy too. Didn't yeah, his yes. son or somebody die, and then he was mad because people made claims that he would come back and still be communicated with. Oh. Yeah, Houdini was always like, these are, you know, perfectly, um, you know, natural means that I'm doing this. Well, he did the thing where he told his wife that, like, if it's possible to come back and give you a message, I will. And obviously he never, never was able to. But he he was he was the one that debunked like he uh, the people that were doing the um, seance tables with trick legs. Uh huh. Houdini was one of the people that like blew the the lid on that one. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's important to mention. We didn't really talk about the seance aspect of it, but mm. this mm -hmm. m magic yeah. boom was kind of at the same time as the spiritualist. Oh, yeah. Boom. Yes. And yes. they used sleight of hand tricks and stuff like that to trick people into thinking so, that a spirit was communicating with them. So another another good episode that you can listen to. Yeah, and we probably talked about it in that one. If you ever see the movie. Oh, uh, shit. Um. So British horror movie, maybe six, seven years ago. It's it's about a woman who is a like a paranormal debunker during the right after the First World War, You're and it starts it starts with her uh, basically like pulling back the veil on some um, spiritualists, quote unquote, that are taking people's money. Mm. I'll find the name of this movie. It's a great movie. Mm. Well, uh, James Randi was a, a sort of a, a, a fan of um, uh, Houdini. Um, he, uh, in uh, 1976, he uh, escaped from a straitjacket while suspended upside down on Niagara Falls, and uh, he beat Houdini's record for being um, trapped, uh, buried alive. He was uh, in like a metal coffin that they put into a swimming pool, although he was very adamant that he wanted everyone to know that he was younger than Houdini when he attempted it, so... It shouldn't, you know, necessarily compare them. It's not a competition. Uh, yeah. He toured with Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so this guy really looked a really, really interesting life. Uh, one, we're going to have to do another um, thing, and then I'll talk about him founding the skeptic movement. This movie is called The Awakening, by the way. The Awakening. Uh, 2011. Um, yeah. Also... Uh, the Scientific American Committee. There was a Scientific American Committee that offered a cash prize to any medium who could successfully demonstrate supernatural abilities, and Houdini was part of this committee. Mm. So he was pretty like official about it. He didn't like kind of hide and try to debunk these things. He went out of his way to be like, "I am Harry Houdini, and this stuff is bullshit, and I'm going yeah. to expose it." So I think that that like um. You know, the mentality that Houdini had uh, was, was kind of like one of the big reasons why he's still so revered, right? Um, 
Well, I mentioned that uh, James Randi exposed uh, the uh, purported uh, psychic Yuri Geller on Johnny Carson's show, and he he embarrassed him. But the problem is, it kind of didn't matter because uh, Yuri Geller was then booked on the Merv Griffin show like immediately after that and became more famous than he ever had been. So this experience was, um, which is actually kind of a depressing story, but, you know, um, but uh, this caused him to get a lot more serious about this uh, pseudoscientific investigation. Um, So together with uh, Martin in 1976, together with Martin Gardner, a scientific American columnist um, and uh, a psychologist named Ray Hyman, they got together to form the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, PSYCHOP. Um, Then um, the humanist philosopher Paul Kurtz, along with some guys that you might know, Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan, um, those uh, people became the founding members of uh, PSYCHOP, um, which uh, later became um, the uh, Center for Inquiry. but that is really the founding of, like I said, the kind of uh, organized skeptic movement, which, you know, I think has done a lot of good work to expose frauds of various different forms, including things that are a little bit more serious, like intelligent design creationism and anti-vaccine pseudoscience and things like that. And I just think it's really interesting that we started talking about differentiating like stage or performance magic from um occult magic or supernatural magic uh and we're sort of ending with magicians as part of the founders of this movement of scientific skepticism yeah james randy's the man (laughs) i i would like to read more about him and and you can watch there's a documentary called an honest liar that came out in 2014 about him he also wrote a ton of books including one about the history of magic called the conjuring Mm. So if you're interested in this subject after listening to this podcast, that might be, it's, it's an older book, but that might be a good place to start. Well, speaking of books that I would like to read, here's one that never came to fruition. I had read about this before, forgot about it. 1926, Harry Houdini hired H.P. Lovecraft and C.M. Eddy Jr. to write a book about debunking religious miracles, which was to be mm. called, this is a great name, The Cancer of Superstition. Houdini had Damn. earlier earlier asked Lovecraft to write an article about astrology, for which he paid $75. The article does not survive. However, Lovecraft's detailed synopsis for Cancer of Superstition does survive, as do three chapters written by Eddie. Houdini's death derailed the plans, as his widow did not wish to pursue the project. Damn. Probably would have been a pretty crazy book. Yeah. For being known as a magician, Houdini did mostly like escape artist stuff. That's what I'm saying. He was he wasn't really as much of an illusionist later in his career as an escape artist. But I did read that he was really close friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But Conan Doyle was a very intense spiritualist, and when Houdini started to debunk these things, it sort of ruined their friendship. And Conan Doyle went as far as to claim that Houdini was actually a very powerful spiritualist. Yep. that was like using his ability to block himself from being debunked. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I remember okay. what, the, what part of the story was. I think it was Arthur Conan Doyle's son that died. That might and be he true. made a bet with Houdini or something about whether or not 
spiritualism was an effective or real thing. This could be interesting. Honestly, we should do an episode about Houdini because he's just really interesting in a lot of different ways. All right. Well, I don't know. Go find the magic that is for you. After you listen to this podcast, it will disappear from your downloads. Magically, in two weeks, another episode will be in your (laughs) podcast feed. Oh man, Mark and, both got the, Mark and I both got in those dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Proud of you. <laughs> All right. Talk to everybody later. See you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to an hour of our time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 150 episodes and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at an hour of our time podcast at gmail.com.